0: From WXCI 91.7 Danbury, this is the Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Rolling. Thanks for joining us on the Public Reading Club on WXCI 91.7 Westcon Radio here in Danbury, Connecticut. I am Matt Caputo your host. Tagging along today is our engineer, Patrick Frenette. He's always here, doesn't always speak. But uh, today we have just the most special guest coming in, uh, one of my favorite writers really of all time, uh, nine-time novelist and uh, TV writer and producer on Law & Order and Blue Bloods. And uh, just prolific scribe in every way you can imagine. Peter Blouner is our guest today, and I really enjoyed speaking with him. And some of the stuff he said about writing and um, essentially, you know, creating stories that you care about as a writer... Really resonated with me, and I think it was a wonderful conversation. So I I hope you all enjoy it. I hope you're following us at at Public Reading Club on Instagram. Uh, I think we're the Public Reading Club on Facebook, but you should be able to easily find us by the logo that was created by uh, also prolific artist Dom Alessandro, who lives here in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, hard to put into words really, uh what it means to have Peter uh, come up here to visit with us at WXEI. Peter is a writer who was right at the top of the list, um as someone I considered for a guest when uh, we started out trying to create public reading club, and uh, I love crime fiction. And his new book is a little bit different. It's kind of a historical thriller uh, that really resonated with me. It's a generational story. Picture in the Sand, out now from Minotaur Books, is really something special. And it resonated with me right away as a generational story that just seemed so appropriate for the time and place that we're in. We also got to talk to Peter about... Just about all of his novels and a lot of the work that he's done over the years. So it was exciting to get him on, and I'm very grateful he um, made the trip up here to WXCI in Danbury. Um, I want to remind you that we are always looking for book recommendations. And at the end of the show, we read book recommendations from you, the listeners, on the air. So it's a great opportunity to let us know what you're reading. And if I have something to send you, I will. Right now we have some stickers, so if you send us a recommendation, I will mail you a sticker, a Public Reading Club sticker, and you can show people that you know what the Public Reading Club is. So I'd be grateful for that. So stick with us. We've got a great interview with Peter Blauner coming up, and we're going to read some book recommendations at the end of the show. So thank you for tuning in to Public Reading Club on WXCI, and... Stay tuned for an interview with Peter Blauner, whose latest book, Picture in the Sand, is out now. Hi, I'm Matt Caputo, and we are back once again for another episode of Public Reading Club. This is our third episode now, and I really appreciate everybody that's come along so far and uh, checked out the shows and followed us on Instagram at Public Reading Club. Uh, We're also on Facebook Um, It's just really been a great experience to sit down and talk about writing in a kind of very um, freewheeling type of way and uh, get the forum, quite frankly, to speak about some of my favorite books uh, like we will today um, with our guest, Peter Blowner, the novelist and uh, television writer and producer. But also to learn more about books that I didn't know as much about or books that I recently discovered. And I think that that's what I did uh, by choosing Paul Cantor and Brianna McGuckin in our first two episodes, which are available um, on all podcast platforms. So it's really been a great opportunity to talk about reading, which is one of my favorite things. So uh, with that... I just wanted to mention that if you follow us on Instagram or any other place, or you email us at thepublicreadingclub at com, we will send you now a sticker that we've made. And you can see those stickers on our Instagram page. So if you send us a review or a recommendation of a book in 100 words, mostly recommendations is what we're interested in, I will send you a cool sticker from the Public Reading Club. And uh, I am very much looking forward to continuing this show. Uh, And this episode today is certainly one of the episodes that were in my wildest dreams for what could be when we started Public Reading Club. Patrick, Frenette, our engineer, and I. uh, I wanted to bring on writers that I may have known personally, but I had more of a personal connection to their work. And I discovered Peter Blauner, who's our guest today, uh, as a journalism student at SUNY Purchase in Westchester County, New York, uh, in about 2003 or early 2004 sometime. And uh, his first book, Slow Motion Riot, was kind of discarded in the journalism lab or uh, journalism office at purchase with a third of the cover kind of chunked right off the front of the book and uh, I remember grabbing it and I remember it was one of those books that when I read it the first time I would get any chance I could to get right back into it so I've I remember reading parts of it uh, online at the DMV uh so you can imagine i probably got through a third of the book right there uh in new york the DNV is just brutal (laughs) but a few years ago i had the chance to have lunch with pete and he's not only a fantastic writer with a lot of great insight into storytelling um but he's also uh, just a a great guy to hang around with and uh to bounce ideas off of when uh we're in the moment so to have him on today uh, especially so soon after the release of his fantastic book picture in the sand which is out now from minotaur books uh it's it's just a great opportunity for people to learn more about him i've known who he is for about 20 years now and um as a native New Yorker, all of the stories that he writes are complex, and they're about uh, relationship dynamics that aren't always so pretty. But they're very true in many ways, and they're as gripping as anything I ever read. So our, our guest is Peter Blowner today. Uh, I'm grateful to everybody who has been following the show. I'm grateful to everybody from the um, the WestCon MFA program, Professor Anthony Dierras, and uh, everybody who's shown support for the Public Reading Club so far. This is really everybody's show. We um, are beginning to get book recommendations coming in. I'll read one at the end of the show. Uh, but it's it's a very much a platform for people to come and talk about books. So don't be afraid to email me or send me a DM about uh, potentially coming on the show if you have a novel or if you have... Um, some local connection to WXEI or if you just want to take a ride up here and talk about your book. So feel free to do that um, either on Instagram at at public reading club, or you can email me personally, Mr. Matt Caputo, M R period M A T T C A P U T O at gmail.com. And I'll get back to you there as well. It's my personal email. Um, We have some other episodes coming up in the near future, but right now I'm very excited to have Peter Blowner as my guest and just hang on for when the interview is over because I will be reading uh, another live book recommendation that came in from a listener of the show. Uh, Thanks so much, and I'll see you a little later on. Welcome back to Public Reading Club on WXEI 91.7 here in Danbury, Connecticut. We have a very special guest today. One of my all-time favorite writers, uh, novelist, uh, journalist, uh, television writer and producer, Peter Blauner is our guest today. Peter, how do you do? Thanks for having me here, Matt. Really appreciate it. How was the drive up?
1: Um, it was um, scenic, That <laughs> <laughs> the iconic can be, uh, reflecting on great car crashes I've seen along the way <laughs> as well. Um, and uh, uneventful in a good way.
0: Tell me, you've got some Connecticut ties. You're a Wesleyan graduate. Later on, you're a reporter for the Norwich Bulletin. Right. What do you remember about your time living up here, your experience up here? How'd you choose Wesleyan?
1: Um, I think I chose Wesleyan because uh, it had a good writing program. And ultimately, I became uh, good friends with a professor named Kit Reed. Uh, who became kind of my mentor and then my longtime friend after college as well. Um, and while I was at Wesleyan, I uh, decided that I was learning more from real life than I was from uh, the classroom. I had uh, spent a uh, summer working for one of my journalistic heroes, Pete Hamill, in New York City. Um, How old were you? I was 19 years old Wow! at the time. And he taught me the three things that i really needed to learn about writing within the first time i had lunch with him he said uh if you have an experience and you think there's any chance you're going to write about it write down every detail about the experience whether you think it's interesting or not or whether you see the point of it or not because when you write about it uh, 6 months or 6 years later That detail will emerge as the most important thing. And if you don't write it down within 24 hours, you won't remember it. Second thing he taught me was um, always ask the hardest question you can think of. You may want to make it the last question because the response may be, get the hell out of my office. And, And frequently it is. But more often it's the beginning of a more honest conversation. And the third thing he taught me was always read people who are better than you. Um, And there's a corollary to that. When I was uh, researching the book, we were going to talk about Picture in the Sand. I spent a lot of time in Egypt, and I met um, the Nobel-winning novelist Naguib Mahfouz, and he said, I've learned more from the near-great than I have from the great. And that makes a lot of sense. Like wow. Somebody who's like a total genius, like Shakespeare, it's, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you read uh, Raymond Chandler or Al Hammett or, or somebody like that, you can sort of see, oh, OK, I, I understand how he got from A to B to C uh, in some way, whereas Shakespeare went from A to J, and I, I don't really understand the logic of how. Um, but you were asking me also about working for the newspaper in Norwich, uh, Connecticut. The Bulletin. Uh, yeah, the Bulletin. Um, and uh, that, that was just a great hands-on experience. I started off writing obituaries. Then, you know, I, I did uh, some planning board stuff and got to work out of the Uncasville Bureau and the New London Bureau and the Bosra Bureau. And this is long before there were casinos up wow. there so yeah, it was uh, really a chance to put some hair on my chest
0: were you doing any crime reporting back then at all or
1: uh, yeah a bit a bit that, but that much more came later when i came back to new york
0: you're on your ninth novel now yeah but you were very much an accomplished journalist prior to that um was that what you initially set out to do
1: uh i became a journalist because i wanted to be a novelist specifically and i and while i was at wesleyan I thought, I'm just some dumb kid. I don't know anything about how the real world works. So how am I going to write stories? How am I going to write stories that people relate to? How am I going to write anything resembling the great John Steinbeck books that I read uh, uh, growing up? Um, So I went to the library one day, and I took a bunch of books down off the shelf, and I flipped to the back of each book to see what the author did for a living before they became a novelist. And the common denominator was newspaper person, <laughs> magazine writer, journalist of some kind. And I said, well, that's good enough for me. So that, that's how I paid the rent. And so I got my first novel published.
0: Speaking of magazine writing, the the piece that's really uh, most impressive in my mind um, was the one that you wrote about hardcore music for, hey, yeah, for right. New York hey, Magazine. Yeah. Can you tell us? The skinheads, yeah. Yeah, what yeah. stands out in your mind about reporting on that? Um, The idea of that piece um,
1: came from an editor uh, for New York Magazine where I worked, saying, you know, there was this movie, Saturday Night Fever, um, and it was based on a New York magazine story written in the 1970s. And an editor uh, named Peter Herbst came to me in 1985, and he said, I just was in a restaurant, and I saw this kid walk in with a, a mohawk with his two parents looking horrified. He said, can we write Saturday Night Fever for this generation, for um, those parents, and for that kid? Um, And I went back and I read um, the article that Saturday Night Fever was based on, and it was completely made up. It was basically a work of fiction. Really published as um as a non-fiction piece i think the writer nick Cohn, who's a very good writer he's a, a, an english music writer admits that now that he uh the expression is he piped it
0: were the people fake too yeah yeah
1: yeah uh, completely in fact the language of the piece if you read it now is obviously uh, english uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh slang Um, It's London slang that's in the piece, and and he's supposedly writing about Bay Ridge, Brooklyn.
0: This is something that I didn't know, Yeah, and I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And there's really no better soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, so it was completely Urzats and I knew, well, I can't do that. i got to write about real people. Not only that, I have to be able to prove that I'm writing about real people. I have to use their real names and their first and their last names, and I have to get them to trust me uh in some way um and uh, um they had uh what they called hardcore matinees at cbgbs uh back then yeah the, um, the, those really loud hardcore bands like uh agnostic front and murphy's law and La Max and all those people and so uh, i got to know uh, a bunch of the young people around that scene i was pretty young myself i was like 24 25 years old wow uh, myself but to them, they must, i must have seemed ancient <laughs> And, and it's a bit of an issue getting young people who are uh, 15, 16, 17 years old to trust you and also really checking your own internal moral Geiger counter to make sure that you're really not exploiting people and capturing them at a certain moment in time that may pass by the time your article is published. And, and um, I, I did my best to do that. A lot of the people I wrote about in the article uh, I've had contact with since then. Some of them were very angry. The first one, uh, there was an episode of Donahue that I was on. Uh, people still know what Donahue yeah, was. Uh, that was an
0: amazing <laughs> episode. <laughs> didn't, well, didn't a fight break out? Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the audience outside uh, Thirty Rockefeller Plaza, they were beating each other with bicycle chains. I've, I've been in touch with a bunch of them since, and now uh, they have children of their own, and in some cases uh, grandchildren. And, and I, I hope. I hope for most of them it's just something that's in perspective and in the rear view and maybe gives them reason to smile once in a while
0: and that piece is online somebody actually posted the pdf they? of that piece on google so it's, it's actually findable i connected with it right away because i had a lot of older friends in the neighborhood who were into that type i really wasn't but it gave me so much insight years later into what they were into yeah Pat, let's see if we could pull up a clip from that 1986 episode of the Phil Donahue show. Yeah, I can do that.: uh,
1: Peter Bloner's here as a journalist who wrote uh, a cover story for New York.: New York. <laughs> <laughs> What troubles you about uh, Peter's story?) <laughs>
0: I just want to say that. I don't know how some dude in the $300 suit can know what hardcore is about when it comes from your heart, man. Hey, yeah. <laughs> um, there's other stuff you allude to on your very charming website. Uh, you did a story about bingo hole inspectors. Yeah. What was, like, I don't even think uh, our engineer here, Pat Fournette, even knows what a bingo hole is. So could you take us through? There
1: actually are still a few in Brooklyn. Uh, there's one least, in Maspeth. Yeah, yeah, I would think there would be some in Connecticut as well. perhaps. But, but um, when I was writing or wanted to write my first novel, I decided the character's job was the most important thing, that the story, the theme, the characters, the language should come out of whatever the character's job was. And so there used to be a directory for New York City called the Green Book that will list every job that you could have working for the New York City government. And I would just thumb through the book when I wasn't working and look for the most interesting-sounding job. Wow. Uh, and and experiment by spending time with people who did that job to see if I could take take that and make a story out of it. And so one day I saw Division of Bingo Enforcement.
0: <laughs> see, to me, this is journalism. <laughs> to me, this is journal. You know, like...
1: And, and I called up the Division of Bingo uh, Enforcement. And I said, can I spend time with one of your enforcers? They said, yes, we'll give you one of our best people. And it turned out that there were five. <laughs> 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 and, and it became this wild adventure on Empire Boulevard in Brooklyn that ended with uh, two, um, I guess we call them sex workers uh, these days, Wrestling the bingo inspector to the sidewalk and trying to rip your shirt open. Anyway, you got to read the story to understand <laughs> how that happened.
0: And then there was something about um, mob guys who became suicide prevention aides.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, that was actually a Mickey Featherstone, um, well known uh, for Westies yeah. uh, fame, who actually was a suicide uh, prevention aide, I think, on Rikers Island uh, for a time mm-hmm. when he was there. Um, I don't know if he actually said you don't have the nerve. go ahead and do it, but you know
0: i, <laughs> <laughs> I I'd be very interested to read um your collected magazine pieces. Have, have you ever considered anything like that, or
1: I think they were um, pieces of the moment as a lot of journalism uh, yes. is and 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 uh, I'm sort of happier reflecting on that time. in in the novels that I've written and and circling back to that and uh, sort of putting it in the context of, uh, you know, looking back rather than uh, trying to recapture
0: 1985. In the late 1980s, you spent six months as a volunteer probation officer. That experience led you to your first novel, the Edgar Award winner for Best First Novel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Slow Motion Riot. Right. Tell us, where, soup to nuts, how did you get yourself immersed in that story
1: well when i was flipping through the pages of that directory i was talking to you about i, I came to department of probation and probation officer and i thought well that's interesting because it was the height of the crack epidemic it was a time that there were uh two thousand two hundred and forty five murders in new york city every year which you know comes out to be five six murders a day uh, there was um, a, a two-week period where uh, six children under the age of 10 uh, were killed. Um, people were getting shot over their sneakers and uh, just uh, uh, grandmothers were getting killed on uh, park benches from uh, the gunfire that was going on. And I didn't want to write from the perspective of uh, necessarily exclusively the drug dealer uh, himself, because I figured somebody else was going to do that, and, you know, uh, rap music already was beginning to address that. And I didn't want to just write from the point of view of the horrified member of the bourgeoisie. I thought, well, who's someone who's kind of in between, who has kind of uh, an eye on both worlds? And the probation officer, that was an interesting perspective, because it's someone who's both half a cop and half a social worker. And he's, he's dealing with the most dangerous elements of society, both at the high and the low end. Uh, some of his clients were street kids caught up in, in the world of crack and guns and, and, and uh, uh, explosive violence. But also some of the clients were white-collar criminals who were uh, having a destructive effect on the economy already. And I thought, well, one person... Is dealing with all these people and is a divided soul himself. Almost has a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde relationship to his clients. I thought, well, you know, let let me delve into that world, become a method actor, and so I left my job at New York Magazine and became a volunteer uh, for six months just so I could have the real day-to-day experience and and, and really have it feel authentic um, because. You're competing with television, you're competing with newspapers. I feel like you gotta give the reader an experience that they can't have anywhere else.
0: As noted in the epigraph, the title comes from a quote from former mayor of New York City, John Lindsay. Uh it's there's there's two quotes there, but the, the one that always sticks with me is by John V. Lindsay, and it's What crime and poverty have created is a riot in slow motion. Yeah. I always wanted to ask you why you included that. I know it's the title of the book, but what struck you about that sentence there?
1: Then, then it's uh, as true today as it was um, um, when I wrote the book, which was 1988 and 89. Um, uh, that that the things um, that happen that wear us down and that um, really disintegrate the bonds between us and society often. Are imperceptible on a day-to-day basis then there are riots from time to time but but they get cleaned up afterwards it's it's what happens more slowly over time and incrementally that really counts for a lot more and affects us more deeply
0: Tell us a little bit about the process of writing Slow Motion Riot as much as you remember. Where were you living? Were you in Brooklyn?
1: I was living on the Upper West Side, and I very much took Pete Hamill's um, words about writing down every single thing that happens uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, It's a heart. And uh, I I was um, living with the woman who became my wife at the time. We weren't married uh, then. And I would get up at, uh, you know, uh, 4.30 in the morning when I went out with the field, what was then called the field service unit. They, they gave me access and they, uh, they gave me a bulletproof vest. They didn't give me a sidearm, uh, righteously so. Um, we would go out to the housing projects uh, and tenements uh, to visit the people who were on probation uh, for uh, often violent felonies to make sure that they were where they said they were going to be and you go out that early because the the night people have finally fallen into bed and the people who are going to do mayhem during the mayhem during the day are catching up on their rest at you know six o'clock in the morning when you're knocking on their door in that case so you're really catching them With their guard down and and seeing what's really going on in their lives and getting an honest picture of what's going on.
0: So were you pulling out a notebook and writing scenes while you were a probation officer? Yes, absolutely.
1: There's a lot of stuff in the book that is word for word um, what I wrote down in those notebooks as it happened. I mean, it's not something that they would tell you to do in most MFA programs. Uh, But again, I came from the world of journalism, and it was almost like punk rock to me. I was just trying to capture a raw feeling, and I knew that it was just a contemporary document that I was composing, but that was okay with me. I, I, I just wanted to capture that feeling and then just trust that the reader would connect to it, even if it was a reader in 1991 when the book came out, or a reader in 2023 uh, looking at it later and, and and somehow say that's another time but I recognize the emotions that people were having and, and the one other thing that I would add is that the real genesis of the story that I told in the book I only discovered once I was deep into the research which was um, we were waiting in the van one morning to go into one of the housing projects and I was talking to one of the Female officers, and I think, given the context of the story, I think I need to actually say that this was a black woman, and she was very smart, very perceptive, and had been doing it for quite some time. And apropos nothing in particular, she turned to me, and she said, "You start off this job with the best of intentions, and you really, really want to help people, and you really, really want to help them turn their lives around." And then it doesn't work, and you begin to hate them. And I thought, wow, that is something you would not hear in a Disney movie.
0: I discovered this book um, probably when I was 20 or maybe just 21 years old. And I was attending SUNY Purchase, which is a very liberal arts college. uh, and i remember feeling like the story was about the struggle between the idealists and and the everyman of the city kind of yeah absolutely absolutely and and the people of the city who were kind of already hardened by it you know i i almost felt like um you know uh the main character it's almost like he's one of those people that moves to new york city and decides that he doesn't like something about his street so he's going to petition the uh the the, the local council or something like
1: well, that. Well, yeah. It was also, to me, about how do you hold on to the best part of yourself in the face of corrosive urban life, in the face of dire conditions. And that is the question that confronts not only the probation officer but the street kids who he's trying to help uh, and uh, you know some of the people in between there. I, and I remember at the time coming out of the subway... And hearing um grandmaster flashes the message playing in my head over and over and over again with the re- refrain of don't push me i'm close to the edge mm-hmm. i'm trying not to lose my head over and over and over again and and it was really out of that state of mind that the book uh, it's emerged. a piece of timeless hip-hop too if yeah. you think about it yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah let me pull a snippet of that up real quick
1: don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head.
0: <laughs> Just to move on a little bit then, after Slow Motion Riot, you did Casino Moon. Right, an Atlantic City book, yeah. And tell us about the roots of that, you know, and explain the story a little bit to, you know, people who might not be familiar. Um,
1: it's a little bit like The Sopranos before The Sopranos. The book came out in 1994. And um, originally, it was uh, supposed to be Heart of Darkness set in Atlantic City. It was I, I thought, I don't want to write another New York City book. I want to write about um, um, somebody who realizes a casino owner like a Donald Trump or a Steve Wynn has gone mad with power and somebody from the corporation needs to be sent uh, down the river <laughs> to get him back under the control anti-trump of. book yeah that's yeah, yeah, sort <laughs> of uh, well, it's like well this is again it was the early 90s um or or you know i imagined it being like the martin sheen character in apocalypse now or something right. like that instead the book turned into something very different often you begin a book with one idea and absolute certainty and that's, that's definitely what happened with the new book a uh, picture in the sand and then as you get into it the characters tell you uh, i'm not the one to tell the story this guy who was on the periphery he's the one who's got the story so it actually became about um the son of a local mob guy who looks at these shiny corporate casinos and thinks how can i move from this grubby marginal world into a more glamorous promising future and he he sees his root in the world of heavyweight boxing and, and and those uh you know bouts that uh, Mike Tyson used to have uh, at uh, the, the casinos back in the day and so uh, he, he stakes his uh, future on uh, his relationship with a fighter and also with a, a female mud wrestler cuz ah. you know then we have to have some local color in the book it was the mud wrestling really an
0: atlantic city thing
1: uh, well i think it was uh, you know
0: an invention a, it
1: was a huma- it was a humanity thing Uh, I I think it was going on uh, at at different clubs uh, uh, across the country.
0: One thing I always wanted to ask you about, and I never did, was that book, Casino Moon, was reissued by Hard Case Crime. Yeah. I'm very curious as to the story behind why they chose that particular book. I uh,
1: I approached Charles Ardai, who's uh, the editor of uh, that imprint, and I said, this book, I think, might fit in with uh, the kind of uh, old-style noir books uh, that you do. In fact, um, the, the, the screenplay uh, adaptation of uh, Casino Moon was written by me and a guy named James B. Harris, who had been Stanley Kubrick's producing partner back when Stanley Kubrick was making noirs. Um, and Charles ultimately read the book. He agreed, even though it's from a, a later period than uh, a lot of the 1940s, 50s, 60s books that uh, Hardcase uh, does. And even though it's a bit longer uh, than a lot of hard case titles, and, and that's how it ended up getting republished by them with a beautiful cover.
0: Do you ever think of trying to do another one with them? Has it ever been talked about? You know, the,
1: the stuff um, that I've done, especially in the, the, this new book, um, I kind of began to feel like, uh, you know, listen, I love crime fiction. I'll always write crime fiction. But uh, I'm, I'm trying to do things that differentiate what I'm doing from uh, the tradition in some way. Because, you know, Hammett, uh, Chandler, uh, Dorothy B. Hughes, and all those people have written wonderful books. And I, I, I want to sing my own song.
0: Casino Moon seems like one that could definitely be a movie. Yeah. Like, could easily be a movie, even today. Yeah. Could probably easily be a movie, even if... Uh, you know, you know, Hollywood took those liberties and recast it a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, it could, it could totally work today. Tell me a little bit about one one book that I I, I haven't really read since the early two thousands is The Intruder, and I I didn't really was it really inspired by the mole people and all that? Like, what what inspired I, I, that?
1: There was a community of people living underneath Riverside Park in uh, Manhattan. Um, who um, were f- referred to sometimes by themselves as the mole people. And I actually did go into those tunnels as part of the research for the book and and spend time down there and did get um, a, a cast iron skillet thrown at my head and a brick thrown at my head because I wasn't necessarily welcomed and embraced by the uh, community. And again, that was a heavily researched project. Um, it, it began... One morning in, I think it was 1993, yeah, that has to be right, where I was pushing my one year old son in a stroller up Broadway. And a homeless guy came out of a doorway, walked right up to me, cocked back his fist, and said, Call the police on me now, and brought his fist very close to my face. Yeah, I'm so cursed. I'm not sure if we can curse on the show right right now but um, I was so angry that the idea flashed into my head to put my hands around his throat but I was with my one year old son so I kept my hands on the handles of the stroller and I pushed my way uh, up the block and halfway up the block I thought that anger that I'm feeling that's, that's half a story that's half a story but even then, I thought that's not enough of a story, or not enough for the kind of story I want to tell. It's not. It's not big enough. By the end time, I got to the corner. I thought, but if the book is halfway about my anger, and halfway about the way that guy sees the world, if half of it's his story, and the story how he got to that place, then that to me is a book. Yeah. And then that, then those. You know, and Stephen King said, uh, uh, you know, a good novel is bringing two opposing ideas together. And that, those were the two opposing ideas.
0: That that I was just about to ask you, I, was that the first time Stephen King kind of started following some of your stories? I think so. I think so. Do you know how he, he kind of stumbled upon you? No, not really. <laughs> not really.
1: I'm just very grateful that he did. He's a great uh, writer and a great perceptive reader
0: as have, well. Have you ever hung out with him or anything? Or? I
1: met him. Um, I was invited to a, uh, a party uh, quite some time ago now um, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Carrie uh, being published. And I wound up at a table with um, Bill Buford, who's a, an editor for The New Yorker, uh, George Romero, who directed Night of the Living Dead, sure, and Salman Rushdie. Who had just come out of hiding after the fatwa?
0: Wow! Uh, it,
1: was, it, was a great, it was a great night. When I, was that? Uh, it had to be one night. Uh, it was right before that terrible van accident when uh, King got hit by a van. Yeah. So I think it would have been like 1999. Wow. So hit 98, 99. That far to, back? Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, you know, I want to mention you. He's we see often on on a few of your books. He's, you've gotten different blurbs from him and whatnot. But I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite Stephen King book?
1: What is my favorite uh, Stephen King book? I, I kind of like um, *Bag of Bones*. Um,
0: That's a cool one.
1: I like I like the Dark Tower uh, series uh, very much. Um, I'm just gonna go on and on. But right, right, I, 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 right, right. Different seasons is yeah, is a really fantastic. A, a, really great. Uh, okay, if I if you if I can only take one with me yeah travel bag. okay I'll, I'll grab different seats. yeah i
0: think so too yeah. i think so too absolutely your next book uh after the intruder was man of the man of the hour which came out prior to 9-11 yeah yet almost everyone on goodreads thinks it was a post 9-11 book yeah unfortunately yeah uh, can you talk about that a little bit well
1: my wife had a uh, uh, co-authored a book called two seconds under the world about the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And one of the things about um, crime fiction and about novels in general is you have to say to yourself, well, how does this reflect the time in which it was written? And if you're writing about the Cold War, you're writing about you know the relationship between the United States and Russia. If you're writing about you know uh, World War II, you're writing about German spies or whatever it is. And I just felt in the 1990s, well, this... Sort of is the issue that's in the back of everyone's mind, the clash between cultures and and what is that going to look like, uh, uh, you know, from the perspective of a school teacher. Um, And that was an interesting way for me to tell that story.
0: Something that was uh, interesting to me was, was there any inspiration... Between that, just the circumstances of the character's heroism um, with the Atlanta Olympic bombing?
1: Yeah, uh, Richard Jewell. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah who I, uh, the, Good movie. The, yeah, Clint Eastwood made a, a movie out of it. And yes, and, and the, it was inspired by that, uh, uh, partly by what happened to Richard Jewell, just for some of your listeners. What happened was uh, uh, there was a bomb found at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. A security guard named Richard Jewell. Um, who's a a man of 40, overweight, living with his mother, really emerged from what many people would think was an obscure, uh, inconsequential life and actually saved people's lives by finding this bomb. And then for... One news cycle, he was hailed as a hero, and he was on the Today Show and Good Morning America, and they competed, and he was in the newspaper. And then a story leaked that, that he might have actually planted the bomb himself to make himself look like a hero. That story was not true. That story was not true. He was legitimately a hero. But that terrible misunderstanding, that way you can be defined
0: polarized uh, uh, yeah, uh,
1: uh, and villainized uh, and demonized uh, uh, in the modern world that that gave me a real pang of sympathy for that person and, and having that emotion is an essential part of beginning
0: a book for me that's a fantastic book thank you uh, as is as is the last good day that's another book that Stephen King mentions uh, he's mentioned it a few times and it's mentioned in a book um, that's often talked about there, uh, with the MFA program on writing yeah. a memoir of craft uh, tell the audience about the last good day what was the p- plot there
1: well the last good day refers to um, September 10th 2001 it was written in the wake of uh nine eleven. and it was partly um, that so many people I knew especially writers were in a state of mind where they were like, I'm paralyzed. I can't write. I don't understand the point of writing. And I thought, no, I feel the opposite way. If if part of my job as a writer is to capture the spirit of the times, then the time is right now to sit down and capture that on the page at the moment. And and so it's a story. It's, a, it's the only suburban uh, book that I wrote. And But it's about... How ordinary people lived their lives on September 12th, September 13th, and all the days that came afterwards, and how we survived that period of paralyzing fear.
0: I believe that Riverside, New York. Yeah, right. Made uptown. Yeah. And uh, what was the inspiration for that? Ossining,
1: Osten, where my wife is uh, from. Ossining. Where, where Sing Sing prison is. Oh yeah,
0: sure, yeah, 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 Sing Sing, also, New
1: York. And also, also where uh, there's a, a large, you know, sort of uh, John Cheever-esque. A suburban community yeah. as, as you move up the hill.
0: In, 19, in 2006, Slipping into Darkness became your last book for 11 years. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about Slipping into Darkness. Slipping
1: into Darkness um, is uh, uh, a book about um, a young man who goes into prison when he's 17 years old and gets out when he's 37 years old for a crime that he very well may not have committed. And it's about his relationship with the police officer who put him into prison for those 20 years and is not willing to admit that he made a terrible mistake. And it's about what happens when there's a murder that's very much like the one the young man was put away for in 1983 and there's another murder in 2003 and the cop is convinced that this young man committed uh, both murders and just won't let go of that conviction. So so it's a murder mystery. Uh, there is sort of like a, 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 a this uh, a detail that begins the book that a, a corpse is dug up from 1983 and, the, and there's evidence that You know, uh, just can't possibly be true that uh, connects uh, uh, the victim with uh, someone who was dead before they were murdered. Um, And um, it's more about growing up and missing part of your life. And this Rip Van Winkle experience of going away when you're 17 years old and getting out when you're 30, a man of 37 and never having had a girlfriend, Never having held a cell phone, never having had a cup of coffee at uh, Starbucks. And how do you begin your life again in, in middle age?
0: It's got a lot of classic novel elements, but the, uh, one of the main characters is slowly going blind. Where, yeah. where did that idea come from? Frankly, it came
1: from uh, my neighbor, uh, Jim Kniffel, who's a writer himself, who had a retinitis wow. pigmentosa, which is a terrible, uh, terrible uh, disease that causes your vision to gradually narrow down uh, to a pinpoint. It's the opposite of macular uh, degeneration. Um, and uh, obviously I felt uh, great
0: sympathy. Some type of choroideremia or something, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: I, obviously I felt a uh, great um, sympathy uh, for people who have that, but also I thought that's an interesting state of mind for someone who's a homicide detective, because often you do see things with a certain tunnel vision and 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 for it's the opposite of what the experience of the young man coming out of prison would have, which is oh my god this tunnel is opening up so much that I have agoraphobia. I'm I'm scared of the <laughs> wide world
0: around me. Yeah, and then and then you take so so many years away from writing novels and you focus on television. Was it over ten years?
1: Uh, in fact, I was working on this book. Picture in the Sand, right? which I just published here, and that's what I was doing for most of those 11 years because I started writing that book in 2002, and I went into television, frankly, uh, A, because I had the opportunity, and I was very fortunate, and I was lucky to be able uh, to do that, but also so I could pay the bills and while I was working on a project that I knew would take me a long, long time to, uh, to render the way I wanted to.
0: So you were working on that novel for 20 years, yep. picturing the new novel that's out right now. But you still managed to write two other novels that were published in that time. Right. So, so what was the driving force behind you coming back to write those two books, Proving Ground and then Sunrise Highway?
1: Um, because I've been writing for television and I've been writing for police procedurals and and, you know. I I made a lot of good friends writing for those shows I had some uh, great experiences writing for those shows people really enjoy those shows but for me as uh, someone who got into writing because I wanted to be a novelist and to because I really wanted to express what's in my heart it it, that's not a full time job you know writing uh, scripts for uh, 40 minute episodes that's that's not enough I yearned to do something that really felt like it was coming from inside me and um the um, picture in the sand wasn't ready yet it wasn't coming together and i hadn't found the right way to tell that story so in the meantime i did have two new york city stories that came back to me and that came to me that i thought would allow me to begin to sing in my own voice again and Mm -hmm. that's why i wrote those
0: it's kind of like a tune-up yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And, and I love those books. I often wonder if they'd be fun TV movies or like. Did I, I asked you this off the air? Did, was there a cinematic thought in your head when you wrote those books? Because I, I almost felt like you were setting it up as a potential kind of intellectual property for a movie. You well, know? I,
1: I, didn't, I didn't approach it quite that cynically, but certainly I was aware, especially with Sunrise Highway which is based on uh, you know, a very famous story about the Long Island serial killer that these bodies of 10 women kept showing up on, uh, um, near a highway uh, in uh, Long Island, and they still haven't found the actual killer. And um, the rumors that began to be spread that um, a police chief involved in the investigation might uh, have a connection uh, to these murders, uh, that was more than uh, just uh, the relationship between an investigator and, and dead bodies. Well, that that's it's a work of fiction in which I explore that. Obviously, I'm not libeling anybody, but that that sort of fired my imagination to explore that world.
0: And you you think you're done but, with the Robles uh, novels? Now? And, and yeah,
1: uh, as you mentioned, yeah, um, uh, the, the, the the protagonist of the books is a young female. Um, Latina, I guess, detective from New York City who follows that trail of bodies. I, I think I've um, come close to the end of the road with Lords Robles, um, as I call her, or Lordis Robles. Um, but it's possible she'll turn up again at some point.
0: It's funny, before we go into a little more about Picture in the Sand, which I really enjoy, I want to ask you a couple of things, because I've been developing an appreciation lately. For whatever reason, maybe I ran out of things to read, but... Um, for for crime characters from novels that have been continued by other writers uh you know uh, I think there's uh for better or worse we've seen it done uh with Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe but yeah. one of the best to do it is uh like you said a friend of yours Reed Farrell Coleman yeah. who's done a lot of good stuff with the Jesse Stone books um I'm wondering if there's a dormant character that you've always wanted to write uh oh, that's an interesting uh, idea
1: I don't know. I mean, like, uh, you know, John Banville picked up uh, the Raymond Chandler character, right. the Philip Marlowe. You know, let it's, me uh, it's, uh, come back to you. Okay. That one that, that one. I'll have to think about a little bit.
0: And then we come to Picture in the Sand, which seems like... Uh, it seems like an entirely different wavelength from Proven Ground from Sunrise Highway. Yep, yep. So uh, you made a cute little video uh, about how you you made... The decision to write the book, but take it through, take us through it for the readers. You know? This is
1: a book um, that's unlike anything I've ever written before, unlike anything that I attempted to do before. This was the bet that I put all my chips on. Um, it began on Passover Easter weekend, two thousand two, right after nine eleven, and um, every holiday, Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, about Moses appears and normally i only catch the end of the movie um with the parting of the red sea sequence then uh, patrick have you ever seen that well the, movie? The, the, there the ten commandments no. with the parting of the red sea you've never seen that i i think i've seen the clip a few he's yeah, seen yeah, the yeah, clip yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's we not, had
0: it on at the arena one night yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody a, knew
1: it <laughs> it's a famous but charlton neston playing moses he stands at the edge of the water And and he raises the staff, and it's it's the ultimate special effects shot. And and I I think there's even stuff in Lord of the Rings that's clearly inspired uh, by that. Um, And normally that's the only part of the movie that I see. But in this case, because everybody was too antsy to sit down to dinner right away, I caught the opening credits. And the the, the movie stars some of the uh, most famous actors of the day, Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner... And Baxter, of Ando And then it says, as the Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian Cavalry Corps. And I said, wow, this movie was shot in Egypt. I hadn't realized that. And I knew just enough from the other books and from being a journalist that I knew that 1954 in Egypt was a crucial stop on the road to 9-11 because that was when there was a struggle between um, the religious fundamentalists of the Muslim Brotherhood and the military leaders who had taken over um, Egypt from the king about the direction of the country, and and I knew that um, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the leader of Egypt, had arrested members of the Muslim Brotherhood, had imprisoned them. Um, Tortured them and that they had become very, very radicalized and ultimately become Al Qaeda and the people who um, um, attacked the Twin Towers. Now I realized the most extravagant production in Hollywood history was shot at the exact same time, at the exact same place. And I thought, let me look into this and see if there was some connection between Nasser and Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille and the Muslim Brotherhood. So I ended up spending 20 years. I ended up interviewing 200 people. I went to Egypt six times, including a month during the revolution of the Arab Spring. Wow. Uh, You know, I ended up in a car that was surrounded by protesters who tried to flip it over, which is a moment that's recreated in the book as well. Um, And I was not satisfied with the way the story was being told for most of this 20 years. I, I knew that I had a a story that was, I believe was powerful that I really wanted to share with people, told from the point of view of a young Egyptian movie fan who thinks he's gotten his dream job working for Cecil B. DeMille and thinks it's going to be his route out of Egypt to achieve the American dream, change his name from Ali Hassan to Al Harrison, move to Pasadena, get the car, get the girl, and, and, and none of it quite works out that way. But the question was always in the back of my mind, why should people today care about what happened in nineteen fifty four? Yes, there's the nine eleven connection, but even that is far back into the past. And it was during the pandemic when I couldn't do the kind of research that I've done on my other books. I, I couldn't go and be a probation officer. I couldn't go and visit the tunnels under Riverside Park. None of that was available that I, I came back to this book that had been rejected by every major publisher in New York and some not very major ones and I said, I'm I'm not letting go of this dream. I'm going to finish this book even if it means I have to publish it myself for three people. I'm that determined. But I had an idea of how to tell the story differently. And I imagined Ali, the main character that I described, telling the story as an old man in contemporary Brooklyn, New York, and telling it to his grandson as a cautionary tale because the grandson has run off to Syria to fight in a holy war instead of going to college and is about to make some of the same mistakes that his grandfather made. And now this story, which has been a long-held family secret, is an essential thing for the grandfather to share with the grandson. So much of the book is an intergenerational story of grandfather and grandson Finally, getting to know each other through the sharing of the story.
0: It's really a beautiful story. Even from the very beginning, it's it's gripping, and there's there's action there, and and, and there's there's um there's tension too, you know, between the the grandfather and the, and the grandson, in the sense that uh, he's he's not really willing to listen, yeah. and and then uh, gradually it becomes closer. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the section you're going to read? Well, um,
1: I'm going to read the very something from the very beginning of the book. Um, I'm going to skip to the second of the two emails that begin uh, the book. The very first thing that you read in the book is an email from the grandson where he tells his mother, I I know you had all these dreams for me Um, going to uh, an Ivy League college, and you thought I was going to chase the American dream like um, my father and uh, my grandfather wanted to and I've decided that I want to devote myself to a higher purpose I want to Leave America where I feel I'm not wanted. I want to go off and fight in the holy war I don't want to end up being a shop clerk. I want to feel the power of life and death in my trigger finger and This is how the grandfather responds. July 23rd, 2014 To alexisfire475 at gmail.com From Grandpa Ali, 71 at AOL.com Dear Alex, I'm too old to call you by any other name. I do not use the email very often, but there seems to be no other way to reach you. Your mother tells me that your cell phone is turned off and that you have left no forwarding address for regular mail. Whether this message will ever reach you or whether you will respond in any way, I have no idea. I pray that you are still alive to read this. It has been more than six weeks since any of us heard from you. Your mother cries every single day, often several times in the course of one meal. Occasionally, Your two sisters cry as well, but mostly they stay in their rooms. Your father is like a zombie. Since you haven't answered any of your parents' emails, I don't know if you're aware that he left his job at the bank to devote himself full-time to searching for you. He has spoken to every taxi service, every airline, every State Department and Embassy official who will take his calls. He even flew to Cairo in Istanbul, showing your picture and spending thousands of dollars on fixers trying to track you down. It appears that you slipped through the fence to Syria to join these so-called militants fighting the government under the black flag. When your father tried to follow your path, he was detained by the Syrian police, badly beaten, and then sent back to Turkey. Now he is home. And though your mother says she doesn't blame him for not finding you, they are not happy the way they used to be, which makes me very sad. There is no real reason for you to respond to me when you haven't responded to anyone else. Even though I've been part of your life since the moment you were born, you hardly know me. And I'm sure you would say I hardly know you, even though we've lived under the same roof since your grandmother died. You are a young man who says he is off to fight a battle for his people. I am an old man who owns a gas station, prays five times a day, roots for the Mets, cries at old movies, and misses his wife terribly. You have always played the dutiful, polite grandson. You have smiled at my tiresome jokes, pulled the chair out for me at the dinner table, and covered me with a blanket when I fall asleep in front of the TV. "'You have shown me respect as the family elder. "'You have been patient and said the right things. "'But I know you have not been very much interested in me. "'And why should you be? "'Someone who has lived what seems to be such a dull, complacent life "'could understand nothing about the great, heroic struggle you have embarked upon. "'Except that one thing you said in your letter caught my attention.' You say this journey you have embarked upon is your destiny. You believe something far back in the past, beyond your parents' comfortable lives, is calling out. I understand this better than you believe. Because when I was your age, I went on a similar journey and very nearly did not come back. It's a story that I've never told you. In fact, I've told very little of it to anyone in the United States since I came here more than 40 years ago even your father my only child knows just the broad outlines because i have always cut him off from asking too many questions i wanted him to be an american bright-eyed and hopeful proud of me as his father and knowing as little as possible about the past because the truth is your boring grandfather like hassan the gas station owner with his leathery skin And his old man, Cologne, spent many years in prison for being a violent criminal and lost his left eye in the process. I've always been strict about keeping the secret. But after your grandmother died, I found myself starting to write things down. Why? I wasn't sure at first. But when I was a young man, I was a kind of writer. Or at least I aspired to be. So I began to write my life story, not because I believed anyone would ever publish it, but because I recognized something of my own restlessness in you. So I wanted you to know me, to know that I had this life. For a while, I thought I might not show it to you, at least not while I was still alive. But now, I feel more urgency. I don't know if you will have the time or the inclination to read what I have attached here, if God sees fit to have it reach you. But I hope you will, because I know how this movie ends. Yours with love and compassion,
0: Grandpa. What I wanted to ask you about that is, in creating these characters for Picture in the Sand, creating them as individuals, making them real to you as the writer. What went into that?
1: Um, Time. Just investing time, imagining being that person, having those experiences, becoming closer to the age of the old man than I was to the young man when I began writing the book and accepting the fact that there are no shortcuts sometimes.
0: How, how much of the relationship you have with your sons went into this? Uh,
1: I don't think very much. Neither of them, as far as I know, is talking about going to Syria. No, but They're I mean, uh, more, more into MMA. <laughs> <laughs> that's, hey. the, that's the battle <laughs> that they're
0: up to. I was doing a lot of driving when the book was first released, and I got to listen to the audio version of Picture in the Sand read by Sean Rohani. Yeah. Uh, it's really well done. Uh, I... Also, feel like you convinced yourself as the writer uh, that each of these characters had a distinct voice yeah and how important is that in all the books you've done and and, and for even advice for other writers because I, I I sometimes you know he, here in the, the writing program the MFA program here at West Count, I come across a lot of students that sometimes I have good idea for a story but then the dialogue kind of falls flat, or they have a good idea for a character, but they can't quite develop it past the dialogue. How how do you work on getting the voice distinct?
1: Well, writing does come out of an oral tradition. Before there were printing presses, before there was you know common language, one of the greatest works of literature existed in the Iliad. I mean, and it was a, a poem that was recited. So when I write something. <laughs> If I have any integrity, I try and make time to read it out loud to myself. And if it sounds wrong, if it sounds fake, usually the problem is not with the individual sentence. It's with the whole idea underneath it. It's with the fact that you haven't really figured out your story or the right way to tell your story. And your tongue will trip you up uh, uh, almost as if you're unconscious is stopping you uh, because you're not telling the truth
0: you you know the biz as well as anybody else and i i wanted to ask you after if they're listening to the audiobook just i'm asking because i don't know how come all of your books aren't on audiobook
1: a lot of them are
0: uh I, i think
1: um you know i started early enough 1991 that the audiobook market wasn't as big a deal. Oh yeah. Back then. And also the the other uh, tricky thing is I, I was alluding to before, it's hard to find one writer who can do like, you know, a Jamaican patty salesman who can do the the Mexican lady uh, selling a uh, mango in the subway, who can do you know the the waspy guy. You know working on Wall Street. You know and and that one one actor, especially these days, with people being so sensitive about these things, can can capture all that. It's it's one thing for me to try and persuade you um, on the page that I'm an Egyptian grandfather talking to his Egyptian American grandson. If I like tried to do that accent myself, it wouldn't be very good. I, I was lucky. When we did the first event uh, for this book at the Mysterious Bookstore in Lower Manhattan, uh, that my friend Eric Bogosian uh, read um, the part of the grandfather, and he did it beautifully, and he did it with an accent I would never have the nerve to do that myself.
0: You, you you've got nine books, dozens of episodes of TV shows. How close? Uh, we we talked about this off the off the air, but we didn't talk about it. This. How close have these gone to? You know the movie stage because we've had you have so many books and we have so many writers even entering the program that think getting to that movie stage becomes easier
1: <laughs> no it, it actually uh becomes uh, harder i've had uh um, with uh, the books um slow motion ride was under option for 30 years and may well be under option again uh soon um uh, you know uh, the intruder uh, had Oscar-winning directors and screenwriters involved in uh, adapting it, and uh, never ended up in front of the cameras. Um, and, you know, uh, maybe someday Picture in the Sand uh, could become a movie. I certainly had cinema very much in my mind as I was writing about, you know, uh, what happens to this young man, uh, both on a movie set and in prison. And I, I could very much uh, envision it as the kind of widescreen movie that i grew up watching in those great uh, old movie theaters with the red velvet curtains but it has to exist and work first and foremost as a book between two covers and so that's that's my primary allegiance to making it work as a story that people are reading
0: but before i let you go i want to ask you one question then i'm going to ask you for a couple of your picks but one one question i want to ask is if you want to say what what what's taking up your time now what are you working on
1: um, writing a, another urban crime novel, um, very much in the same vein as Slow Motion Riot and uh, Proving Ground, um, and really going out and doing the research again and uh, trying to get uh, the accumulation of calluses and bruises on my hands deliberately that'll make it feel real, uh, make and give it uh, what the critics used to call the feeling for life, because I, I think... No matter what anybody says about, oh, there's a market for young adults, there's a market for romantic uh, literature, whatever it is, I think people want to connect with the characters and feel that they're people they could know in their actual lives. So that's the real challenge.
0: I lied. I have to ask you a follow-up. Is there any characters from all of your books that you'd love to know? Achilles,
1: by the way. Yes, or Odysseus. That's a character I would like to uh, continue.
0: There you go. (laughs) But, I mean, a character from your book. See, I I don't think everybody will know. You are a a crime novelist. Most of your books, all of your books are really standalone books. Yeah. Uh, There's only one case that I know of where characters repeat. Right. Lotus, yeah. What do you think of that invention? Do you ever have a a feeling like you want to bring an old character back for a new story?
1: I don't particularly feel attracted to the idea of writing a, a series character myself because for me the whole thing with um, a story a novel is it has to be about change and it has to be so about somebody's life changing in a very fundamental, deep way and if it's the same character in 25 books and they're going through 25 major changes in their lives, there's something really wrong with them Yeah, <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting way to they're, look at it. They're a little unstable I'm, um, but I'm good with okay, I'm telling a story about a bigger landscape, I'm talking about a neighborhood, I'm talking about a city, I'm talking about a place, and having people come back. Because to me, one of the most interesting stories and one of the things I've really um, gotten the benefit of is sticking around in one place long enough to see how the story turns out, to see how people's lives change and evolve in ways that you could never expect. Um, He's passed now, so I think I can tell this story. Um, I was friends with um, a famous criminal lawyer named Jerry Shargell. He was John Gotti's lawyer. And at one um, of the Gotti trials, he was excluded and accused of being house counsel for Gotti. And and they actually got rid of him, which is a very, very heavy charge to be making about uh, an officer of the court. And a few years before he died, uh, Jerry invited me to a luncheon where he was getting an award for uh, Criminal Defense Lawyer of the Year. And the person who presented the award was a judge named John Gleason, who recently published a book himself. And Gleason uh, actually got up and, and performed a musical tribute uh, to Jerry in uh, to the tune of... Uh, Leonard Cohen, Suzanne, but but the more interesting thing is, Leeson before he was a judge had been a prosecutor, and in fact had been opposing counsel in that Gotti case, and in fact had been the one who made the charge that Jerry was house counsel wow. and essentially acting as an arm of the mafia. And he said, in presenting the award to Jerry, "You you live long enough, you see everything." Well, that's that's what I want to stick around for as a storyteller
0: yeah you, you've definitely done it all and um, speaking of seeing it all I'm gonna ask you two little questions as we exit here right. you watch a lot of movies and you often write about those movies on Facebook right I go to the movies every week and I, I try and watch a few movies a week myself um, I I like a certain type of movie you know I, lo- I love I I love anything that's like The Usual Suspects. I love anything, um, anything based on a crime novel. What, yeah. What's your favorite, like, detective kind of crime movies? Noir. Yeah, noir yeah, movies. Yeah. I
1: noir. Guess noir. I, I love this show, Noir Alley. That's on uh, TCM. That's hosted by Eddie Muller. And and one of the things that I really love is that occasionally he'll put on a movie I've never heard of before and i you know i'm pretty steeped in those old uh, detective uh, noir movies and he'll show something from 1950 with actors i barely heard of with a budget of a uh, dollar 50 and they're not all great but once in a while you'll see one that's a real gem and that's why i go on facebook to say guys you gotta check this out
0: you, you, you still like to go to the movie theater pete yeah
1: once in a while but they make fewer and fewer movies for old guys like me so.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah we got to get to see Marlowe soon yeah um uh, la- very last thing we want to thank you so much for coming up here today you, you're uh when when i had this show in mind uh i you know to be able to speak to you about all your books and to talk about writing and to even share that with some of our community here for the west con uh MFA in creative and professional writing. I'm sure some people listen to this and, and, and I know they'd love to have you back uh, maybe later um, next semester or next year. But tell me, I usually have a guest, at least one of the guests that comes on the show so far. I've asked them for a book recommendation and I'd love for you to recommend a great, it, the ma- you know, a master of crime novels. Why don't you recommend a good crime novel everybody would really like, maybe by another writer?
1: Does it have to be a crime novel?
0: Uh no, but no, but Oh well. I you can don't. recommend me crime novels off the air.
1: But I'll recommend you crime novels off the air, but I'll just recommend a novel cuz I think it's a piece of great writing. Sure. Bambi. Bambi. Bambi is a great novel. <laughs> I'm not kidding about this at all. Bambi was written by an Austro-Hungarian writer named Felix Salton in 1923, and I it's been reprinted uh, by New York Review Books, and it is a, an amazing piece of writing, especially for young writers. It's, it's got very little to do with the Disney movie, and I know people have all kinds of traumatic memories about the mother dying in uh, the Disney movie. Um, Salton made the ceiling and the walls disappear for me, and I felt like I was in the middle of the woods, and it was as intense and involving for me as the best of crime fiction uh, that I've uh, read um, and an interesting piece of history. Um, Sultan himself was driven out of uh, Austria because he was a Jewish writer and the Nazis perceived this book as being an allegory about the oppression of the Jews. And they, he basically was lucky to get out alive.
0: Wow. Uh, I didn't know seven.
1: that. And, and, and when you read the book, you definitely can interpret it that way. And the mm-hmm. other interesting thing about it is Salton himself was a hunter. <laughs> Even though the book is very much from the point of view of the deer, you can also appreciate that the book had to have been written by a hunter who was very much aware of, you know, what's going on in the woods all the time.
0: Wow. Pete, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, great to have you here, as um, you know, as a writer and as a friend. And we definitely look forward to what you've um, got coming in the future. Uh, this has been the third episode of Public Reading Club on WXEI ninety one point seven from Danbury, Connecticut. The writer is Peter Blouner. The book is Picture in the Sand, out now from Minotaur Books. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks again for sticking with us on the Public Reading Club here on WXCI 91.7 from Danbury, Connecticut at Western Connecticut State University. We had a great interview with Peter Blauner. Uh it's, it's really humbling to have Peter drive up and uh, spend some time with us here today and uh, share a lot of his thoughts. So, Pete, thanks so much for coming up. But we're going to get now to the book recommendation portion of the Public Reading Club. But again, these are all incoming book recommendations. We had one from uh, Alan Patron a couple of weeks back. And now we have one from a reader. We have a book recommendation from a great Danbury guy, a huge fan of the Danbury Hatricks, Ron Evans who's just a prolific reader he's very close to being a constant reader having read all of stephen king's books up until uh this point uh and he's working on that but he is just a prolific reader he goes through books you know probably maybe two a week and a book that he's recommending us is heat two written by michael mann and meg gardner and this is a sequel this is this is a novelization that is a sequel to the great movie Heat that starred Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, uh, going back many years ago now. I wonder if that was the late 90s, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, 1996. So the recommendation comes from Ron Evans for Heat 2. In 1996, the movie Heat was released. The movie has two actors in their prime, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. It was one of the best movies to show in-depth character development and what makes them tick. In August 2022, Michael Mann continues the story from the movie. The book picks up right where the movie ended, so you can see Pacino's character, Hannah, chase after Val's Kilmer's character, Sharulus. Spoiler alert. Neil McCauley who's played by Robert De Niro, is shot by Hannah in the final scene of Heat. But that doesn't stop Michael Mann from showing Macaulay in his prime with a prequel story. the Storytelling in this book is excellent and continues to show the lives of the main characters from the film. If you are a fan of this movie, then I highly recommend reading the continuation. It's a prequel, 1988, and a sequel, 2000, all in one. The original Heat movie was based on events from 1995. It's crime fiction at its best. Hope this helps with the show. Ron. Ron Evans, thank you so much for sending um, us a recommendation here at the Public Reading Club. Ron uh, is, again, just a very constant and steady reader. Uh, Tells me that he puts away a book every time he goes on a business trip. Uh, Just reading all the time and we often talk about books uh, on friday and saturday nights at the danbury Hatricks uh pro ice hockey games here in in danbury uh great local tradition incidentally if you're interested in ice hockey and danbury uh cats out the bag that our engineer Pat and I also host a weekly hockey show dedicated to Danbury hockey and some of what you may have seen on the uh, Crimes and Penalties documentary on Netflix about the Danbury Trashers. So some of that stuff comes up, but we keep people pretty up to date here on 91.7 WXEI uh, from Western Connecticut State University. But I really appreciate Ron. Sending me book reviews. I I wanted to make a show, uh, and Pat wanted to help me, where the, the, the idea would be to give people who read, like Ron, a forum to talk about what he's reading and have it in a very unpretentious way. So I really love that this book recommendation is a sequel to an action movie, a crime movie, from the, the 90s I, I think it's great It's a it's a great way to show that novels are really cool uh, Types of uh, I mean Whatever you want to call it It's a cool art form It's a cool medium It's a cool form of entertainment uh, I mean to, to write a sequel to a crime movie From the 90s as a book I think is very interesting And if you're, you're interested in, in Film And movies It, it might be that much more um you know it might be something that you want to look into. And I think it really could inspire some of the students here at uh Western Connecticut. You know, this is a popular movie that the you know, the director and the writer just kinda decided to recreate uh, another world to. So I, I think it's interesting when that happens. And I want to thank Ron for sending it in his recommendation. He often has had a few beers uh, down at the rank, and we are deep in conversation about books when, like, a goal is scored or a fight breaks out during a hockey game. So, uh, it uh, it's really great to get a recommendation from him. And incidentally, if you want to send us recommendations, do it on Instagram, uh, do it via email. You can either email me personally, Mr. MR, period, Matt Caputo at gmail.com. Or you can send it to thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com. We check that email uh, for recommendations all the time. But please, send us in something. Uh, send us a friend of yours that published a book recently, and there's, there's something to talk about because we want to hear from those people. Thanks again. This is Mac Caputo from Public Reading Club signing off from 91.7 WXCI, Danbury, Connecticut, WestCon Radio. See you again soon. Thanks so much for sticking with us at the Public Reading Club here on WXCI. It was great to have Peter Blauner visit us in the WXCI studios and share his experience, share his knowledge. Uh, I felt like there were a lot of writing tips in there um, that I hope some of our WestCon MFA students were tuned into if they did check out the show today. It's really been... um, So far, very special to have different writers from different backgrounds, um, different types of books they're writing. And that's what really inspires me about literature. I love speaking to people that write books that I'm not necessarily interested in sometimes. In this case, Peter Blowner's book is very interesting to me, captivating, uh, so richly told and so true that um, I... I think I'll appreciate it more and more as I get older. So it was really fun checking in with Peter. He's been not only a friend to me, but he's definitely been a friend to this show since we've started. And um, I'm looking forward to his next book too, because he does have another project on the burner and it'll be exciting to see what he comes up with because um, one thing about him is, is that he's, As we spoke about uh, earlier in the show, he's never writing the same character more than once, so it's a completely different story he's weaving every time he writes a novel, and that's, uh, I think, just a testament to how Rich's imagination is and how skilled he is as a writer in uh, producing something from these very uh, sometimes complex uh, circumstances that he... Uh, outlines in a novel so it was great to have peter on and i look forward to having more guests on Uh, we've we've definitely started to pick up a little in terms of people being interested in the show i mean i it's crazy how we still have a low number of social media followers again you can follow us at public reading club on instagram and also public reading club on facebook um the thing is i think it's just we're creating a forum for the writers and the readers to just express to us what they're reading what they're interested in right now what they're excited about and we want to hear about all of that so if you just want to email it's thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com and i'm sorry for all the different iterations uh to identify us but that's just the way of the world These days uh, Can't be all uniform but please Reach out to us at the public reading club And you know Tell us what you're reading So this is the point in the show Where I read <clears throat> A couple of Recommendations from some readers out there And we're very lucky today To have seasoned Reader uh, Ron Evans sending us recommendations. Uh, Ron is right up to date with almost all of the Stephen King books. He'll do it this summer. Uh, he's tells me that, you know, when he goes on business trips for work, uh, he sometimes puts away an entire John Grisham novel in just a short little uh, overnight kind of business trip. So Ron Evans, he's a guy that I know through the Danbury Tricks games. And if you're interested in hockey at all, you can also tune into Hattrick City, which will give you the update on everything going on with Danbury professional hockey with the Danbury Hattricks. And we go back and talk about the Danbury trashers of Netflix fame. Um, So if you want to watch the Netflix show, it's... uh, Netflix untold crimes and penalties about the Danbury Trashers, and then you can start listening to Pat and I's uh, weekly radio show called trick City. But right now we're talking books on a public reading club on WXEI ninety one point seven here in Danbury, Connecticut. The recommendation coming from Ron Evans is a unique book. It's Heat Two, written by Michael Mann and Meg Gardner. And what it is, it's a sequel to the nineteen ninety six movie heat which starred robert de niro al pacino and val kilmer written as a novel so i'm going to go through that uh as quickly as i can and that's a recommendation from ron evans uh danbury hockey super fan and nearly constant reader uh, of the stephen king variety so thank you ron for sending in this recommendation of heat too Heat 2, Michael Mann and Meg Gardner. In 1996, the movie Heat was released. The movie has two actors in their prime, Al Pacino, who plays Hanna, and Robert De Niro, who plays Macaulay. It was one of the best movies to show in-depth character development and what makes them tick. In August 2022, Michael Mann continues the story from the movie. The book picks up right where the movie ended, so you can see Pacino's character, Hanna. Chase after Val Kilmer's character, Sheryl... Sharulis. Spoiler alert, Neil Macaulay is shot by Hanna in the final scene of Heat, but that doesn't stop Michael Mann from showing Macaulay in his prime with a prequel story. The storytelling in this book is excellent and continues to show the lives of the main characters in the film. If you're a fan of this movie, then I highly recommend reading the continuation of this story in Heat 2. It's a prequel, 1988, and sequel, 2000, all in one. The original Heat was based on events in 1995. It's crime fiction at its best. Ron Evans is a guy that I'd like to get on this show because he's really just a prolific reader and he knows so many books and he's he's very well versed in nonfiction. So I'm hoping to have an all Stephen King show at some point with Ron as kind of like my co-host and we can discuss a lot of Stephen King stuff. We asked St- uh, Peter Blowner, about Stephen King earlier in the show. And uh, it would be great to talk to some of our other guests about um, his impact on them because I think it would be cool. Then we got another book recommendation, and it's uh, The Foundation Trilogy from Isaac Asimov from great friend of the show, Greg St. Clair, who's also a diehard danbury hat hockey fan and if you find the danbury trashers documentary on netflix crimes and penalties from the untold series you're going to get to know greg st clair so i think it would be a great opportunity to not only find out about greg's favorite book but to also go on netflix and learn a little more about danbury um but uh Greg's mentioned this book to me a few times. He supported the show. He uh, heard about the show, and he wanted me to do uh, something about the Foundation Trilogy. But I thought, first off, it would be great to just get him to recommend it. He said, it's been 35 years since I've read it. But I'd say to make such a long story so engaging and be coherent is incredible. Only part I can actually remember is the guy smuggling an atomic bomb in his tooth. But it's a great book. And I think people who pick it up would like to check it out. Thanks, Greg. So, Greg, thanks for sending in your recommendation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. And I think that uh, it's more of that type of stuff, just kind of the person on the street who has a book recommendation that I want to incorporate more. So if you want to DM us, if you want to, uh, you know, send us a long email, just send it to us at thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com. And we're going to get back to you. We're going to include you on the show. And we might even send you a gift if we have one laying around. We do have some books laying around right now. So if you want a copy of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller by Paul Cantor, who was our guest on our first episode, send us a book recommendation, and I'm going to get the books out this week. So thanks for tuning in to Public Reading Club. We will be back um, on the 19th, and we, we hope you enjoy what you heard today. If you did, drop us a line, Public Reading Club on Instagram, Public Reading Club on Facebook, and this has been the Public Reading Club from WXEI 91.7 in Danbury. The Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury, hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Furnett and Matt Caputo.